This podcast was recorded prior to the tragic deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others, and the eruption of protests across the world that occurred as a result. Mark will address recent events in a short postscript at the end. Please stay tuned. Hi, my name is Ruth Candler, Assistant Director of Lifelong Learning at Washington and Lee University, and I'm your host for WNL After Class, the Lifelong Learning Podcast. Every episode will have engaging conversations with WNL's expert faculty, bringing you again to the colonnade, even if you're hundreds of miles away, just like the conversations that happen every day after class here at WNL. You'll hear from your favorite faculty on fascinating topics and meet professors who can introduce you to new worlds and continue your journey of lifelong learning. Thanks for listening. Today we'll be talking with Mark Connor. Mark's day job is university provost, WNL's top academic officer, and his roots are in teaching and scholarship as the Joe and James Ballengee Professor of English. In his 24 years at WNL, he has studied and taught Irish modernism, the American novel, and African American literature, among other areas of literature. You may have taken one of his courses, The Bible as English Literature, or perhaps The Modern American Novel, or maybe you were lucky enough to take one of his many spring term courses in Ireland. Countless WNL alumni, parents, and friends have come to know him through his excellent teaching in the WNL Alumni College or through his warm companionship on the road through the WNL Traveler Program. When he took the job four years ago as university provost, we began to get nervous, for such appointments seem inevitably to lead to positions elsewhere. And as fate ordained, sadly, Mark will be leaving us this year to become president of Skidmore College. Mark has published six scholarly works on the writings of Toni Morrison, Charles Johnson, and James Joyce, as well as a book-length study of Irish film. His most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, is The Selected Letters of Ralph Ellison, which he co-edited with John Callahan. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much. We Lovely are, to be here. Ruth. We are so excited to have you as our first podcast guest. I can't think of anyone uh, more appropriate. So. Your office, um, very English professor-ish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Have you read every book on the shelf? I have read parts of at least every book okay, on the shelf. Is, I'll say that at least. That's yes, fair. Yes. That's fair. So you 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 have your coffee in front of you, and uh, you know I feel like every time I've seen you, you have that cup of coffee in your hand, and so. I you thought, know, I'm, I'm from Seattle, so <laughs> a cup of coffee is like mother's milk for us. There you go. So let's start with a question that might seem second nature. If you were taking Ralph Ellison to coffee in Lexington, where would you go? And if conversation about his literary work was off the table, what would you want to talk about? Well, I'd probably need to take Ellison to a bar. He was much more fond of a martini <laughs> than he was of coffee. Uh, and he liked to also talk about his fondness for Irish whiskey, which is how he and my dear friend John Callahan first bonded many years ago. Uh, I would want to talk with him about, about his favorite topics, America, American complexity, American history, uh, the American novel, and how it matches that American complexity. Uh, he, he has forgotten more about jazz music than I will ever know, so I would love to talk with him about jazz music. 
He started his career as a trumpet player and a jazz musician, and his great ambition was to be a composer both of classical symphonies and jazz symphonies. So he has a, a professional expertise in music that is really important to his work. So I have a feeling if I put a dry martini in front of him and asked him a couple of good leading questions about American jazz, the evening would take care of itself. Mm, so there would definitely be music playing in the background of that bar. Exactly, oh. exactly. Uh, so congratulations on your publication, The Selected Letters of Ralph Ellison, which came out last year. Um, you've taught and researched Ellison for many years. What inspired you to study Ellison and how does Ellison tie in with your other research? So I, I came to WNL partly to, to teach African American literature and modern American literature. And I'd worked on a number of African-American authors before I came here, especially Toni Morrison. And then I started teaching Ralph Ellison, and I, I knew of his importance. Invisible Man in particular was such a crucial book in the American canon. As I started to read more about him and started to write about, about his work, the, the complexity of his vision and the rigor of his artistry and just how well attuned he was to American complexity became so evident to me. And I increasingly began to get the realization that no other author I have ever studied has ever uh, had such a keen understanding of how America works. And he liked to talk about America as both tragic and comic. And, and the comic, he meant the, the hopeful, the uplifting, the promise in what he called those founding documents uh, from, from the founding fathers. The tragic, of course, is the legacy of slavery and institutional racism and the, and the broader legacy of American injustice. And what I find so amazing about Ellison is he's always going back and forth between the tragic and the comic. So right when he is composing a lament on American racial injustice, he's also giving us a presentation of the immense promise and uplift of America. What a nice balance that is. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. So correct me if I don't have this quite right. The selected letters of Ralph Ellison took 10 years to write and countless hours in the Library of Congress. In preparation for writing this book, you read every single letter that Ralph Ellison wrote, and how many letters are there? So all of that is, is accurate. It okay. was about a decade-long project for, for John Callahan and me. Um, we, did, we did look at every single letter in the Ellison files in the Library of Congress, and we distilled all of them down to what we thought was a very severe cut. What are the most important letters? And it left us with a thousand pages of digital images of his letters. From there, we made another cut, but not, we didn't have to cut out too much. Random House was really supportive of the project and let us do you know, this massive full volume, full volume work. Uh, so, so it's a very comprehensive selected letters. There are a few other letters in the archives. I wouldn't say they're not interesting, but they don't, you know, we wanted letters that shed light on Ellison's biography, you know, his thinking and his, and his thoughts and his aspirations, letters that told us something about his writings, and letters that told us something about American literary history. So those are kind of the three criteria that we were using. And, and the letters that we didn't put in are doing other things. So they're certainly of interest to Ellison scholars. Um, but it, one of the things I like about the book is it's really readable. It, it almost reads like Ellison's own autobiography, and that's what we really wanted, was to let Ellison 
describe Ellison in his own words. And, and that's what the volume uh, aspires to. Why was it so important for you to write that book? There had been uh, a couple biographical studies of Ellison, uh, only one full-length biography. And Ellison is a, is a contested figure. Uh, he had very strong opinions about, I mean, anybody with strong opinions about race, politics, literature in America, history, uh, uh, you're, you're going to uh, uh, attract both critics and, and people who praise your work. I would say that the biographical studies of Ellison have leaned towards the, the more negative side. And uh, we wanted to have Ellison's words, his, his own testimony, uh, in front of the reading public. And what's been so interesting is the initial reviews have been so positive. And, of course, that's very gratifying as, as one of the editors mm -hmm. to see that. But it's even more gratifying mm -hmm. to see that it's as if people were hungry to hear Ellison describe himself and to really get at the closest you could come to, to actually talking to the man. And, and that, to me, is a really good sign that there's an open-mindedness towards Ellison's ideas and views that I think is, is actually really healthy for America right now. Well, and maybe the need for inspiration as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, we, we could use all the inspiration <laughs> we can get in America right now. That we can. Um, what was the most challenging aspect of putting the book together? Well, uh, uh, I, I would say it was really tough to, to feel that one had an authoritative grasp over 60 years of letters from this brilliant man to all these other brilliant women and men, and, and to have a thorough understanding of that. So everything from the, the footnotes we put in to explain to whom the letters were going to the larger context of the letters. And, and this is where, you know, my, my being able to partner with John Callahan, who was the senior editor on the project, was such a, it was such a gift to me. John was Ellison's best friend for the last 20 years of his life. He's the man that Ellison chose to be his literary executor, so he trusted his literary work to, to John. And, and John, John knows, his, his understanding of Ellison is so encyclopedic and capacious. So to me, the most memorable moments of this project were the hours that John and I spent in the Library of Congress reading room. And we'd be going through letters, and I'd say, John, who is this person? Or what was the context for this? And, and he, would, he would tell me about things that, that nobody else in America knows about Ralph Ellison. So for me, it was, it was just this, this great immersion with a very generous, knowledgeable scholar um, uh, who, who has a unique perspective on Ralph Ellison. Yeah, so it's almost like you got to be friends with Ralph Ellison through Callahan. So it was the closest one could come. I, I just missed meeting Ellison. I was at Princeton when he was still in New York, but then he passed away actually the, the year I was coming to WNL. Uh, so, so hearing John evoke the man that John knows so well, and he knew Ellison's wife Fanny so well, um, to hear, to hear John talk about him was, there's, there's nothing like it. That was really a great experience for me. Oh, I bet. I bet. So after talking about that, what was the most ex unexpected part of the book? If you had to think back over the, the 10 years and then having it published and having it in your hands, was there anything that you're like, wow, that didn't expect that? I, yeah, I would say, you know, we, all the Ellison scholars knew about the, the famous letters, letters he'd written to Richard Wright or to Saul Bellow or letters about the civil rights. I mean, we've been looking at those over the years in the archives. I think what, what I was surprised by is uh, 
how many letters he wrote on, on very unexpected pedestrian themes. There's a whole genre of his letters to people about how to make your own transistor radios from scratch. Ellison was a real tinker. He liked to make things, and, and he was a real, now we would describe him as a techie, and he would build radios, and he would build radios for other people, and he got into a whole kind of subculture with people like that. The other big thing was his fascination with photography. And he's in Rome in the mid-50s writing all these amazing letters about the civil rights movement, but he's also writing letters to camera store guys in New York saying, I need this kind of camera, this kind of filter, can you get this kind of film? Everything he did, he did well and with, with expertise. So it's really fun to see him diving into these other areas of interest which, you know, you, maybe they shed light on the literature, maybe they don't, but they open up these vistas of his, of his humanity. Like, oh, that's something he was fascinated by. And you can go to the Library of Congress, and part of the archives are Ellison's own photos. And it's amazing to see the, you know, what he wanted to take pictures of, for example. And this is an area that, that future scholars are going to have a great time with. It's really interesting. So what were some of those pictures? Beautiful pictures of his wife, Fanny. And you can see a real um, adoration of her beauty and her character that he wanted to capture. Uh, landscapes, when they were in Europe, the, the very crucial years, 55 to 57, when they were in Rome, and he's working on his second novel while the civil rights movement is unfolding in America. So he's writing about that from a distance and then looking at this old world landscape of Europe and trying to think about how America comes from Europe and how here he was an African-American going back to Europe. So, so why he is drawn to certain landscape features in his photography is really interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. And then a lot of pictures of, of the New York cityscape, uh, which he moves to in the late 30s. And except for that trip to Europe, he really never leaves. He stays in uh, Riverside Drive near Harlem for the for the entirety of his life, never leaves. Wow. You've said that Ellison's letters expose his most private thoughts, anxieties, hopes, and loves. What was most revealing about them? Well, the letters that I think are going to garner the most attention in that area are the letters he writes to his wife Fanny near the end of the Rome, the, the two plus years in Rome, uh, when he had his, his one affair and these very intimate letters between the two of them about the affair, why he felt compelled to do it, uh, the, both the, the terrible guilt and self-blame, but also, again, he was, he was a very proud, stubborn person, uh, and, and he, he doesn't exactly apologize for it. Uh, and so he talks with Fanny about how each of them had a role in bringing the affair about. And, and I won't mince words. These are tough letters to read. Um, he continues to be a man whom I greatly admire, but that doesn't mean I admire everything about him. And, and these letters are, are painful. Uh, it has a lot to do with their inability to have children, his desire to have a son, uh, the, the different recriminations between the two of them. What is amazing is that the marriage survives and thrives. Uh, this is in 56, 57. Uh, they have another almost 40 years of really magnificent married life together as, as true partners and lovers. So it's a real, it, you know, as, as we do more biographical work on both of them, and there's a lot of work to be done on, on Fanny, uh, 
uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that relationship was able to sustain itself and what was behind that. That's interesting that you say that because when I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you describe that, you know, my first inclination is, what did Fanny have to say? I want to read her oh, her yeah. letters mm-hmm. uh, back. So I'm it it to to have that one sided sort of sort of. Um, view of just reading his letters mm-hmm. about all of that. And, and we went back and forth on that on, on a couple things. John had done a book in the late 90s called Trading Twelves, and it was the correspondence between Ellison and his very good friend Albert Murray, another African-American novelist and musician. And, and they published both, Murray's letters and Ellison's letters. So it was, a, it was a back and forth. Amazing book, very revealing. One could do the same with the Ellison Richard Wright letters to show both. Um, we had talked about pub, including letters that he wrote to other people, but except for a couple footnotes where you really had to see what had provoked Ellison's letter, we decided not to do that. So, so that was one of our hopes for the book: is that this is going to be the springboard for a whole new wave of Ellison scholarship, which includes very careful study of Fanny, his brother Herbert. Uh, the, the, the Oklahoma family from which he came. So there's a lot of great work that, that's going to be done, there, that is being done there. So you obviously had a perception of Ellison before reading his letters. And the letters that you just described were, you know, the, the tough ones that, that uh, were tough to read. Did, did reading his letters confirm this perception? Did it deepen it? Or, or did your perception of him change in some way? So I've, I've said for years that uh, one has to be very careful uh, hoping to admire the authors about whom one writes. Uh, James Joyce is a great example. Amazing author. Do I admire him as a husband, man, and father? Not particularly. I mean, there's lots of things to admire, but boy, there's some, you know. Yeah. And, and a, yeah. he would say the same thing about himself. Uh, I have said for years that there are, there are three exceptions to that in my own reading. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lady Gregory, and Ralph Ellison. Uh, working so much on the letters, uh, I, you know, I have to say there are, there are things about Ellison, what I'd said earlier, things about him I don't admire. Now that being said, anybody who does intense biographical work on another person, they are human, all too human. And, and so we... I think the biographer gets a certain sense of humility as we see what a great a great man in this case accomplished, but also the the baggage he brings he brings with himself. Uh, Ellison's discipline, his endurance, his work ethic, his uncompromising approach to America and to himself, these are all things that I, I admire greatly. And there are things about him I would want to emulate myself, which is probably the real test of, of how one admires one's sure. character. Sure. Um, but if I were to do even more biographical work on Tolkien or Lady Gregory, I'm sure I'd find things where I'd say, eh, I don't like that part right. so much. So um, yeah. It'd be great if we could just you know, research the stuff that made us feel just good. Just pick and right. choose the good. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Ellison was a hugely important figure in shaping blackness in literature in the 20th century. In looking at his letters, did you see him having an impact on writers that followed him? And if so, what does that look like? Oh, his influence is is profound. Uh, he was changing the way American writers, black, white, and, and all across the spectrum, were thinking of their work, certainly as early as Invisible Man coming out in 1952. 
uh, and probably along with Toni Morrison and Saul Bellow, the most influential American novelist of the last of the last half century. And it's interesting; his influence is it's all over the place, and it uh, uh, it depends on the writer. So I discovered in the letters that in the late '60s, Ellison wrote a jacket blurb supporting the debut novel of somebody nobody had ever heard of. And it was turned out to be Cormac McCarthy, who many would say is the greatest novelist since 1970 at least. Ralph Ellison, he turned down jacket blurb offers right and left. Everybody wanted him to write about their novels. He chose to write on this unknown writer. Uh, he, he saw that there was real artistry, real genius here. So Ellison had an eye for, for great art. He also was very willing to say to a writer, this, this is not great art. And when he said that, there was no, oh, I want to encourage you while I give you criticism. He was brutal. And he would usually say something like, you, you have failed as an artist, which means you didn't work hard enough. You lack, he always used the word discipline, which for him meant this, this unrelenting work ethic. So if, if somebody sent him their novel and he wrote back and didn't like it, it was, it was tough. Uh, just like he had taken hard knocks in the 30s and 40s as he moved towards greatness. So he was unrelenting in that. Wow. After I saw your talk about Ellison a, a couple weeks ago, I started thinking about letters and letters that have moved me. My family has this small metal uh, toll-painted box that houses letters from our family dating back to the Civil War. One of them was written by a family member which talked about his march through Richmond in 1864 where he stopped to pick a flower in a garden. And that flower he pressed and then sent with a letter to his wife describing that moment in Richmond and what it was like to, to, to be there, to be in that garden with you know all of the war surrounding him. Holding this letter and this pressed flower in my hands moved me in a way that I, I can't describe it. Mm -hmm. it it's just, it, it, it brings me back to a moment in time that, you know, I don't know whether it's my head, my heart, or what. Did you, did you handle Ellison's original letters? And if so, were there any feelings of physical connection to his history and literature? Oh, gosh, all the time. You know, one of the most memorable parts of that work. So all the Ellison archive material, they're all in boxes, in folders. It's all paper, of course. And even uh, the bulk of his letters, he typed them and he used uh, the old carbon copy. He kept copies of all his correspondence going back to the late 30s, which is kind of interesting uh, that, that he knew even before he was unknown that his words were going to be important in some way. Uh, and then on a lot of his writings, he makes hand edits and then sometimes goes on to incorporate those into a later draft. So there's a lot of handwritten stuff in there as well, so you see his actual handwriting. The, um, he was a, a great smoker of cigars, and there is an odor, there's a, an aroma wow. to the Ellison archive. You smell his cigar smoke on the paper. And there's to me, that was, that was unbelievably yeah. moving. There was something about, there's still a physical presence of him in, in the material, which I found, I loved that. That was, yeah. that was really a delight. Those, those personal letters to his wife, uh, very poignant letters to his younger brother, uh, Herbert. Um, some of the letters that 
where Ellison is writing back to what he called the old folks in Oklahoma, the, the ancestors from his parents' generation and before. There you, you almost get a feeling of the, the, the man's spirit being evoked in the letter itself. And, and I, I know just what you mean. There's something about that physical presence of the letter. It takes you back to the moment when it was written. It's not like yes. an email or an electronic communication, which is somehow unmoored from yeah, its time. A little colder or yeah, something. Yeah, this has yeah. a material connection to its time. You're holding something that you know was written in 1946 or 1967 or 1974, and, and it takes you back into that time yeah. for a few moments. What does a letter mean to you? I thought about that a lot. Uh, letters, of course, are a transmission from one person to another, but it's also a preservation. And this is kind of what we were just talking about, of the letter writer right. and, and her consciousness from that time. Uh, and then it also takes on, particularly if, it's, if the letter's of a great person, uh, it takes on the context of that time. So a personal letter Ellison may have wrote in 1955, when we put it in the context of what's happening with the civil rights movement, uh, it, it becomes a document about its time as well. So um, Ellison, you know, at times I've described him as the last of the great letter writers. The last decade of his life, he was one of the first to embrace the desktop computer. And he was make, writing these letters on computer in the early 90s, you know, before most people even knew what they were. So he was on the cusp of electronic mail and the transition away from the handwritten letter or even the letter as a concept. So we almost came to the end of that genre with Ellison himself. Uh, and he, like Saul Bellow, like a few other great writers of that time, they were voluminous letter writers. There's a kind of compulsion to write letters uh, for some of these authors, uh, almost a kind of therapy for them. Wouldn't you love to be able to ask him if he still found that ther therapy in writing when he was typing out an email instead of handwriting a letter? It's a little hard to imagine, but yeah. possibly so, yeah. Are you yeah. a letter writer? I do write letters. Uh, uh, I write a letter every week to my sons uh, when they go off to college. Uh, with it, and typical, we, we have three sons. With the first, I wrote a letter every week, all four years. With the second, I started out that way, and then letter a month. Uh, we'll see how I do with the third. Now, individual um, letters or one to all three of them? Uh, individual letters, yeah. Just short, one page. But it... I mean, I really am, it, there's something different about a letter, and uh, they don't, I don't think they quite appreciate what it means to get a letter still, although there's delightful moments where Noah called and he said, yeah, I got it. How do you open an envelope? He was struggling <laughs> with how to tear right. this thing open. I mean, it's a, it's a technology that's been, that's been lost. Right, right. Yeah, I can remember teaching how to, uh, teaching work-study students what side of the envelope to put the stamp oh, on. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah it, it is. Yeah. So do you... Do you save copies of those letters that you're mm -hmm. writing to your sons? Yep. And put them in a book or? Well, they're, uh, they're Word documents. So I have folders, okay. you know, letters to Matthew, 2015-16. Yep. So that's where I have them. So okay. if, uh, if that drive gets erased, I lose the letters. So I should print oh. them at some point. Or, or save them somewhere else too. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. So writers today seem less likely to leave this kind of physical record uh, because the way we communicate has changed, as we were just talking about. 
we don't write letters like we used to. I think back to when I was in college and I used to write the obligatory Sunday letter home. And then when my own kids were in college, they were texts. And so they weren't even emails that you could save. Do you think writers are more inclined to save their written words like you are or? You know, it, it's a great question. Uh, I'm I'm in very close correspondence with Charles Johnson, the National Book Award-winning novelist and philosopher, and I've written a book about his work. And so we have we have a, a rich email exchange, and I I save his emails uh, partly for for future scholarship. I mean, this is important important things that he is saying, but I mean, there's thousands of them. Who's going to go through this stuff? How do you? archive it? How do you catalog it? Uh, how does one make sense of it? How do you even preserve it so that somebody knows where it is? You know, up, up until about 30 years ago, uh, an author's papers would go into a library. Uh, what happens with those, with those emails? What happens with the electronic communication? I don't know that we have a solution for, for how to preserve that material now. Add that to your to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so before we move on, you talked about something the other day that I thought was really cool. There was an interesting connection between Ellison and Washington and Lee. Would you tell us a little bit about that? So we, we found out that Ralph Ellison, as far as anybody knows, was the first African-American to speak in Lee Chapel. This was in the early 1960s. He was... Uh, on a, a speaking tour in the South, he was going down to the University of North Carolina, where Reynolds Price, a, a famous author and American scholar, was. And uh, Price was in contact with, I believe, one of his former students, who at the time was a young WNL English professor named Severin Duval. And Severin invited Ralph Ellison to come to Washington and Lee and to give a talk. And he gave a talk in Lee Chapel. And it's in the Ring Tum Fi, and you can access those electronic archives and read the story. And it sounds like he gave uh, a talk similar to what he was giving at a lot of places in the early 60s about the American novel and American democracy and the complexity of American politics. Now these things all fit together. So, so there he was in the old chapel with the, the Lee Monument behind him. And Ellison uh, was quite aware of all the, of the tragicomic American tableau in which he found himself, a black man in front of Lee, in Lee Chapel, in this richly complex uh, historical setting. So um, I'm, I'm quite proud in a complex way that WNL brought him here. Now it was the year after the WNL trustees uh, disallowed the students who wanted to bring Martin Luther King to campus. So this again is part of that American story of our of our challenges, our, our failures, our triumphs, uh, and, and all of that is part of what makes this institution what it is, just like it's part of what makes uh, America what it is. Now, Severin Duval, he retired, and a few years later his position was filled with another young English professor, and that was me. So he was a great mentor to me. Uh, when I started teaching the Bible as Literature class, that had been Severin's course for decades. And I remember going over to his house before the term started, and he gave me a box full of files and teaching notes and materials. And I still have that material. That continues to be something that I draw upon. So that's, that's a very WNL story, you know, a senior faculty member, even in his retirement, helping a young 
professor learn learn how to do this complicated, fascinating job. Wow. And then full circle to your book. Yeah. Yes, exactly. When one of the John Callahan's visits to Washington and Lee, we had the dinner at Southern Inn and I invited Severin to come. And it was maybe one or two years before Severin passed away. And so he and John got to talk together about Ellison and about that visit. And uh, so, and, and Callahan is, is the epitome of the generous scholar. And he really, he really gave his time to, to Severin, which I really appreciated. What that gift. was a love, yeah, it was a lovely yeah. moment. So a couple more questions before we transition into talking more about you and your life at WNL. To me, letters seem very private, and I wonder if I might feel exposed if my letters were published and people read them. How do you think Ellison would have reacted to this collection of his letters being published? You know, we, I, I certainly struggled with that. You know, the letters to Fanny that I was describing earlier, I mean, these are intimate expressions. And uh, these are things that one would not say to the world. You know, these are things that if, if you know they're going to be important for posterity, that's one thing. But, but these are very complicated. And that anybody who does biographical work, there, there's, there are going to be these moments when you're grappling with, with very delicate, sensitive material. Uh, one of the things I'm quite proud of in the book is the, um, the professionalism and the respect with which John and I handled the material. So we, we put Ellison out there in his full complexity. Like there's never a time when we said, oh, that letter, he doesn't come off well there, let's not publish that, nothing. We never even entertained that sort of thought. Uh, but we did try to put, put things in uh, a full context, which is the job of the scholar. Uh, to sort of explain where this material comes from and what motivates it and how it how it fits, but now it's you then hand that to the scholarly community of the present and the future, and you let people uh, grapple with with those words and interpret them as they will. Some of our listeners will have come across Ellison while in school, but will not have read anything by him in years. Where might they want to dip back into his work, and why? Three places. Read Invisible Man. If you read it before, reread it. If you read it last week, start rereading it again. It's one of the greatest American novels ever written. His short stories called Flying Home and Other Stories, these were published posthumously. Half of them had been published in the 40s in Ellison's lifetime. Half of them he wrote and never published. We didn't even know about most of them until John and Fanny found them under Ellison's dining room table after Ralph had died. That's crazy. John pulled them out, <laughs> realized what they were, uh, brought them out in book form with a, a beautiful introductory essay that remains the best biographical writing on Ellison anybody has done. These are great stories, mainly about African-American boyhood in the 1940s. They're just remarkable. And then a book called Juneteenth, which John brought out, again, is published posthumously uh, in 1998. And it there's basically three big chunks to the unfinished second novel. Juneteenth is the middle chunk, and it is the most finished, the party worked on the most, and, and it's what I've called the deep heart's core of the, the second novel, to use Yeats's phrase. And, and it, John edited it lightly. He had a very light touch with it. It was mainly done. Uh, so it has a complete, completeness to it that is very rewarding, and, and much of it is... I have said and, and written the, the finest writing by any American writer. It's really a remarkable book. 
Great suggestions. There Thank you go. You. Thank you. And then read the Ellison letters, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah. I thought that was going to be the first one you started <laughs> with. So you joined the faculty at Washington and Lee in 1996. Uh, how have you seen the school change over that period? It, it is remarkable, two things. It is remarkable how much Washington and Lee has changed in the quarter century that I have been here. And it is uh, laudable and impressive in my view what has not changed. And I think this is of great importance. I think the test of an institution like a nation, how well does it preserve that which must not change? And then how much can it change itself precisely in order to preserve those things that it doesn't want to change? So there are many examples of the changes at WNL. Uh, buildings, technology changes, generational changes. I think the um, diversity and complexity of the student body is the most remarkable change. In particular, the way LGBTQ culture is now thriving at Washington and Lee doesn't mean that, that it doesn't face oppression and challenge and doesn't want to grow in all sorts of ways, but compared even to five years ago, yeah. to say nothing of 10 or 15, that transformation, as in the country, has been, has been remarkable and largely led by students, uh, which I think is, is quite laudable. At the same time, the honor system, from what all I, all I can tell, is stronger than ever. The speaking tradition is surviving the cell phone era. Which is uh, wonderful, yes, yes. Thanks to people like Ted Delaney, who if a student passes him on her phone, he will track her down until she puts <laughs> the phone down and says hello. And a number oh, of I us are, are, yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. Uh, will Dudley has pledged, I will not be on my phone when I'm walking on campus. He said, if you see me on my phone, grab me and I'll donate $100 to your favorite charity. Isn't oh, that amazing? That's great, that's great. Um, so the speaking tradition remains. And then uh, uh, this is a place that is still unabashed to use the word honor without irony. And, and I think that is uh, a magnificent thing. And it's something that I hope I can find elsewhere in the world when I leave here. That's great. You once, once made the comment about how being at a liberal arts college with an emphasis on teaching allowed you to grow in ways that you wouldn't have otherwise. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, certainly professionally as a scholar, if I had gone to a Research One institution, I never could have moved out of a very narrow first three decades of the 1900s American and AFAM literature. So that might have kept me even from working on Ellison and Morrison, who were from a different era. But in particular, uh, I never could have branched out into modern Irish literature, uh, which I've now got my third book on Irish literature that's going to come out next year. I mean, that, that's been a whole scholarly direction that I've absolutely loved. Now, that only emerged because in my fourth year at WNL, I decided to take students to Ireland for the spring term. And, and for me, that, that was the biggest life-changing part of being at WNL. Uh, this year would have been the 10th time that I'd be taking students to Ireland in 20 years. Uh, being over there with students, looking at the historical and biographical structures like Yeats's Tower and Joyce's uh, home and so forth that they've been reading about and putting the literature in the place right next to each other. And then just having um, a kind of camaraderie with students that you get in those intense learning experiences and can't have any other way. To me, that has been um, uh, an incredible opportunity 
that the institution has offered. And, and it's not dependent necessarily on the spring term. There's lots of ways WNL faculty and students have those opportunities, whether it's in the research lab or experiential learning or co-curricular work or the advising moments in the, in the office, whatever it might be. But that kind of um, close connection with students that, in my view, feeds the scholarly work has been the, the signal difference of WNL for me. Yeah, I like what you said once too about uh, how you you always brought your wife and children on these trips, and how students saw you as not only a teacher, but as a father and a husband. And um, yeah, I love the the, the humanistic side mm -hmm. of that. I think that's very important. So you're not only a favorite of undergraduate students, but you are also a favorite with alumni college and traveler program participants. You made the comment once about your most exciting lifelong learning programs were not the ones that were in your subject area. And you said you were both a student and a teacher mm -hmm. in, those, in those instances. Can you talk a little bit about this and what that means to you both? from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is, it's exactly that case, both the student and the teacher. You know, probably almost every summer for 20 years, I've, I've lectured in an alumni college or lifelong learning program. And the, the best example of this for me, it was the Jane Austen program that we did, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 years ago. And, and I had been teaching Austen. You know, she's early 1800s British literature, so that's a long ways from my fields of expertise, but in my first year writing course, which uh, I've always taught, and the subject is coming of age, which I always joked means I can teach whatever great literature I want, because everything <laughs> is a coming of age, whether it's Lear on the Heath at age 80, or an Austen character at age 14, we're coming of age all the time. So I, I just got to teach great literature. So I would always, that's how I kind of learned the great 18th and 19th century writers. I would teach one or two of those every year in my, in my first year writing course. So Rob said, do you want to do a program on Jane Austen? I said, oh gosh, I'd love to. And, and of course, I instantly realized how little I knew about Jane Austen. So that winter, I read two of the biographies, I read her letters, I read scholarly work about her, I reread all the novels, and it was so much fun. And, and I, I think I gave pretty good lectures on Austen. Oh, I have no doubt. Uh, and, and I incorporated a lot of the film, uh, recent films about Austin, on Austen novels, which is a whole genre in itself. So I emerged from that with this great appreciation for one of the magnificent novelists of all time, which helps me understand a Ralph Ellison or a James Joyce. Ellison's work, you wouldn't have it without a writer like Austen. Another program we did was on the Brontes. Uh, again, I had taught Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, Emily and Charlotte Bronte, but I hadn't, hadn't really done the Brontes in a, in a serious way in my teaching. So I spent a year working on that, gave the lectures. There's an Ellison letter where he says, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights is one of the three most important novels he had ever read. Now, if you're a scholar who doesn't know what that means, that Ellison is pointing to uh, an eccentric and brilliant mid-19th century British woman novelist up there in the moors in Yorkshire who is struggling to, to in, in a male-dominated world to express a female voice and that Wuthering Heights is both this highly romantic but also tragic sensibility. But, I mean, you, you just realize what would draw a Ralph Ellison to that kind of novel. If you don't know that about Emily Bronte, you, you kind of pass that over. 
and, and misunderstanding Ellison himself. So the, the programs were great fun. I got to read these great novelists in, in these cases, but it also was a crucial part of my own intellectual development. And that's something that I have said from the very beginning, the role of lifelong learning in faculty development is so important. Uh, there are things that I have read, things I've lectured on, other scholars I have met that have, have altered my scholarly trajectory for the better, and it wouldn't have happened without the lifelong learning programs. We could list a lot of ways that you've had an impact on WNL. Your involvement with Spring Term, the Africana Studies program. What stands out most to you, and what are you most proud of? You know, there, there's a lot of, of big initiatives that we achieved in the, the 24 years that I've been here. And in my role as provost, there's some, some specific ones, like helping to establish community-based learning, for example. Um, the spring term is, of course, a, a major such achievement. Uh, one of the things that teaches you if you're in a leadership role is how collaborative that work is. So, so all those things that I could list were the achievement of the faculty, the administration, the students, and, and I found myself in the service of those efforts, which it was a great honor to be in that role. What stands out to me the most as I am now preparing to leave a community that I've been immersed in for a quarter century is the people, without question. It's the students that I know, the students that I'll never forget. It's the faculty members that, that I so admire and have gotten to know so well. Uh, people in the community, of course. And then one of the really wonderful things about being provost, and there are wonderful things about being a provost, is you work across the entire university. So when I moved into that role, I moved out of just being among the faculty and now working with staff in student affairs and admissions and facilities and public safety. And I tell you, my admiration and respect for the staff at WNL is, is of the highest caliber. And when I think about the relationships that I've had and that I'll, that I'll most value, many of them are with those people who, who give so much to this university. That's funny. That was going to be my next question to you was, you know, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about your accomplishments as a faculty member. Let's move on to talking about provost and, and your move into the provost and what that meant to you. So I think you answered that. I think I hit that yeah, one. you yeah, did would, on the head. So. Right. Yeah. And I would just add, you know, just because of the timing of it, I had the opportunity to work with a great WNL president in Ken Ruscio for the last couple of years of his time and then to work with a great WNO president, Will Dudley, in the first three and a half years of his tenure. So that was a great advantage to me to get to learn from two, you know, really astonishing academic leaders. And that's been a huge part, I think, of my preparation for the next, the next step in my career. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that quite yet. Fair enough. <laughs> what do you hope your legacy is at WNL, both as an educator and as the provost? Uh, gosh, I, I don't know that I've really thought about that. Um, I, I think the legacy is the relationships. So if I have a legacy at the university, it's, it's primarily with the students that I've taught mm -hmm. over, over a quarter century, uh, and, and many of whom I'm still in close contact with. And that's, that's a wonderful thing about this kind of work, is that those lifelong relationships with students. Again, the faculty and staff that I've had the opportunity to work with and get to know 
uh, as I get ready to leave WNL, without question, it's the people that I will will remember the most. Um, if there's another part of the legacy, I hope it is contributing to the whole ideal of a liberal arts education, which I continue to think, actually more than ever, uh, is is the most valuable form of education this country has ever created. I think it's never been more exciting to be involved in the liberal arts. I think it's never been more challenging. I think it's never been more necessary. So if I've uh, contributed to that at WNL, that would be a very satisfying thing. So now that we've talked about your, your role as an educator and the provost, let's talk about Mark Connor, the, the person. Um, so one of my first memories of you actually wasn't at WNL. Um, it was about 15 years ago while I was watching Seth's karate class. And you were actually down on the floor and were one of his instructors. Um, I, it was then I suspected that you probably had the patience of a saint. And, uh, <laughs> but tell us how teaching in a karate studio differs than teaching in an academic setting. Or does it? Oh, uh, well, it, it overlaps, yeah. I mean, uh, all teaching draws on a lot of the same principles, certainly. Uh, the, the, the martial arts teaching I've gotten to do has really been special for me. Uh, I started doing, started doing martial arts in college. I started doing karate in 98, I think, here in Lexington. And a few years later, got connected with a great teacher in Stanton named uh, David Clements and began teaching for him mainly the children's classes and did that in Lexington, in Amherst, and then uh, uh, I helped bring him here to Lexington to, to found the karate school here and taught for him for many years. And now I still teach occasionally up in Stanton for a different instructor. Uh, Master Clements uh, taught me the importance of, or reinforced me the importance of enthusiasm uh, and the importance of framing the, the critical part of your teaching, like, okay, you need to do this better with something positive at the start and something positive at the end. So young, a young boy in class, seven, eight years old, is working on his sidekick. First thing you say is, you know, wow, that's a great rooted leg you have for that sidekick. With your kicking leg, you need to work on getting the foot position correct. I really like the focus you're bringing. So you, you give them praise to, to open them up to the critique. And they hear the critique, and you don't leave them with that. You leave them with the praise as well. Uh, that that really matched the way I like to teach in the first place. Um, and I think it's probably the, you know I realize when I grade papers, the first thing I might say, no matter how bad the paper is, you know you're really doing something well. <laughs> Here's some things to work <laughs> nice on. <penmanship>. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, keep working on this. You know this is showing improvement. I mean, you, that's the envelope is yeah. is encouragement and positivity, and then within that. Uh, the student is able to hear the crucial things that she or he needs to work on. What a life lesson that is. I mean, as a parent, just, you know, always remembering the, the positive as well as the construction. Very challenging mm -hmm. as a parent. Yes, yes. All right, changing gears. Where's your favorite place to eat in Lexington, and what do you order? <laughs> <laughs> uh the last couple of years, Napa Thai mm. has been has been hard to favorite. beat. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and uh, the red curry is a real mm -hmm. favorite of mine. 
I always love going to the Southern Inn. I'm very predictable in that regard. And and uh, fried chicken or meatloaf. Uh, I was just gonna say, unashamed <laughs> to say, the meatloaf okay. there is is phenomenal. Book recommendation. What would you tell everybody they need to read? There's a little-known novella called A Month in the Country by a British writer named J.L. Carr. And uh, it comes in and out of print. When it's in print, I always order 10 copies so I can give it to people. It is one of the most moving, beautiful little novels I have ever read. Uh, along with The Great Gatsby, it's probably the closest thing to just a flawless little novel. How did you discover it? Uh, when I did my study abroad in London as an undergrad, the professor assigned that book as a book to help us understand the English countryside oh, and um, uh, mural painting in medieval churches. And the book was, was just transformative for me. So that would be the first one I would recommend. Duly noted. Um, so I heard, I, I was going to ask you your movie recommendation, but what I'm going to ask you instead is to tell the Roadhouse story, because I think that is oh. a scream. <laughs> So the Roadhouse story is 2007. I'm in Ireland with 24 students. We're on the bus traveling all over the place. Uh, and there's a student there. He's brilliant. He went on to work for the Obama campaign and Stanford Law School. You know, just brilliant kid. Uh, but I, I overhear them in the back, and they're talking about the Patrick Swayze movie Roadhouse. And I turn around and I say, oh, yeah, Roadhouse. Yeah, I know that movie. And this, this student says, wait, you know the movie Roadhouse? <laughs> I said, yeah, it's a great movie. You know, we talked about it. And he goes, God, that makes me feel so much better about myself that you like the movie <laughs> right. Roadhouse. And you, know, you talked about how on the Ireland trips, they see me as not just Professor Connor, but in these other roles that, that all, all faculty have. And there's something really, that's a wonderful example of that. Uh, at least in my case, I'm very proud that I'm not just books and scholarship yeah. and knowledge. Um, I love sports. I love a good pub. Yeah. I love... Movies like Roadhouse. I mean, yeah. these are all these are all great Makes parts you very, of life. Very human, doesn't and, it? Yeah. yeah, and all of those are connections with with other people, yeah. students, community, whatever. Um, all right. So now we're going to do some free association, just to hear what you have to say. So when I say a word, first thing that comes into your mind. Okay. Like no comment. You can. Okay. You can say no comment. Book. James Joyce. Lexington. Barbara. That's my wife, just for listeners out there to know. I was, I was going to say... That's some odd girl that came to mind. <laughs> I, I do know Barb. Yes. So, um, and the next one was going to be pet, but that, that might not be a, a good one after, you know, you, you well, say Well, that'd be Barbara. Molly or Chocolate Lab, <laughs> so we're okay. Okay. Embarrassing. Uh, embarrassing. I, I can't think of anything. You are so lucky because so many things come to my mind when I hear that word. Yeah. Mountains. Mount Rainier. Mm. Your Seattle roots are Yeah, it, it was out my window in Tacoma growing up as a kid. Teacher. Scholar. Colonnade. Majesty. Family. Uh, children. Guilty pleasure. Ice cream. <laughs> Podcasts. <laughs> Great fun. Oh, excellent way to start. <laughs> On that note, is there anything else that you want to say before we go? You know, just in our conversation, I just realized how lovely it is to talk about the whole scope of my, of my time at WNL. You know, the students, the faculty, the staff, the alums, the parents, the trustees, the colleagues, 
It is a colonnade. wonderful world, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It is. And and you were very generous to give me a chance to to reflect so capaciously on on all that experience. So well, thank you. Thank you. Mark, thanks for joining us again. It's been three months since we first recorded this podcast, which was our first ever. Getting to this launch has been a rewarding challenge, but the challenges we have faced as a nation demand a deeper perspective, and we feel it was important to give you the opportunity to share your thoughts. Well, of course, when we when we recorded this podcast originally, uh, it was prior to uh, the, the latest and, and in many ways most profound eruption uh, of protest and calls for racial justice and equality in our nation uh, that, that many of us have seen in our lifetimes. And, and it's impossible not to reflect upon that as we think about all we've discussed in the last hour, particularly about Ralph Ellison and his vision of America, uh, and, and also what, what the Liberal Arts College is called to do. Uh, I, it's very appropriate to offer this epilogue here at the end because Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, ends with an epilogue. The last chapter has the Invisible Man hiding underground. And then Ellison wrote his epilogue where the Invisible Man says, I have a socially responsible role to play. My hibernation is over. I need to emerge and grapple with America again. And this, I think, is where we need to continue to think about what a liberal arts college education provides. It teaches us to think creatively and critically. It teaches us to grapple with hard truths. It teaches us to put in conversation the lessons of history, politics, science, religion, economics, social justice, and the world around us. And especially, it puts us into communities whether it's a seminar or a lecture course or a civic engagement project or just students and faculty and staff talking together about the world. It puts us into the communities where we find common cause with one another. That's where hope for America is finally to be found. Communities coming together in common cause in a spirit of understanding, patience, forgiveness, but also holding ourselves to the ridiculously high expectations that constitute the American promise. Ellison always pointed us back to those founding documents, the Constitution, the Declaration, the Bill of Rights. And he said, America is challenged to be what America promises to be. That's what the Liberal Arts College finally tries to do. And it's one reason, once again, that I am hopeful stubbornly hopeful, at times absurdly hopeful, about the future of this country and of our great colleges. Thank you for listening. We hope you discovered something new. To read more about today's podcast and check out other ways to continue your lifelong learning with WNL, you can head to our website, wlu.edu backslash lifelong. You'll also find WNL's faculty reading list, sheltering in place with a few good books, and information on how to join our new WNL book club. We hope you'll join us again back here soon. Thanks again, and until then, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future. Mm -hmm.